0: Hello everyone and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Colleen Murphy, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. Today I'm joined by Dr. William Hyatt, a professor of medicine with the Division of Cardiology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. During this year's American College of Cardiology. World Congress of Cardiology virtual meeting, Dr. Hyatt gave a presentation that revealed the results of an important subgroup analysis of Voyager PAD. The analysis and its findings are being hailed as practice changing. Now, he'll be offering his insight into those results with us. Thank you for talking with me today, Dr. Hyatt.
1: I appreciate joining you.
0: Before we get into your findings, like I said, this year's ACC meeting was virtual due to the COVID 19 pandemic. I was wondering how that was for you, presenting at a virtual meeting.
1: Well, I think uh, the American College of Cardiology should be congratulated on doing a truly fantastic job under very short notice and extreme conditions. I think they certainly were able to get kind of the top line kinds of presentations, late breaking presentations, that kind of thing. And there was a flurry of activity but impressively successful. So I think a a model perhaps for things going forward, unfortunately, but I think overall that part went well, all the other sort of smaller sessions, you you could post your abstract and that kind of thing, but you you missed out on the opportunity to be with your colleagues and and discuss your results and your data. That was unfortunate, but due to external circumstances. So from my point of view, I think the, the virtual nature of it went as well as could be expected. And once again, I thank the college for their efforts.
0: And I'm glad that we were still able to hear from you and the other researchers about their findings, even though we couldn't do it in person. So let's talk about your presentation on the Voyager PAD analysis. Can you provide a brief overview of the analysis, maybe why you did it and what your findings were?
1: Yes, and I think I should start with the overall results. So I was the chair of the executive committee that ran the Voyager trial. My colleague, Dr. Mark Bernaka, also from the university and our research center is on the executive committee, and he did a tremendous amount of work in the trial management analyses that allowed him to present the primary results the day before the subgroup was presented. And the context here is that patients with peripheral artery disease who are symptomatic often undergo lower extremity revascularizations. Those are mostly endovascular, but some surgical. And in that setting, there really is no evidence to support any particular regimen post-intervention to prevent the complications such as increased risk of myocardial infarction, stroke, and death, as well as, more importantly for us in the interventional world, acute limb ischemia major amputation. So Voyager was designed to fill that gap. And... It was designed to test the hypothesis that low-dose rivaroxaban, 2.5 milligrams twice daily, plus 100 milligrams of aspirin compared with aspirin alone, would reduce the risk of these severe thrombotic events, which included a novel composite endpoint of acute limb ischemia and major amputation of a vascular cause, plus the standard cardiac endpoints of myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke, and cardiovascular death. The overall results were quite positive. The hazard ratio was 0.85. The number needed to treat in three years was 39. The event rates were very high. The benefit was, was very dramatic and consistent across components of the primary endpoint and across the subgroups. Importantly, the other re- primary results did show that that this combination of rivaroxaban plus aspirin also prevented the need for recurrent hospitalization, for a recurrent revascularization and also reduce the risk of cardiac and peripheral hospitalizations of a thrombotic nature. So really quite impressive results. So I think that's the overall background from which I speak, and these results fill a tremendous unmet need in this population. So with that, then the question was, well, what's the role of what has been traditionally used in this setting, which is clopidogrel plus aspirin, otherwise known as DAP, or dual antiplatelet therapy. Now, there was no evidence for DAP going into this, although practice patterns clearly supported its use, largely, I think, extrapolation from coronary trials, because in the peripheral circulation, trials that used dual antiplatelet therapy in this setting all failed. It didn't show an improvement in limb outcomes, but did increase bleeding. So, recognizing that the practice patterns did incorporate a short course of daps We allowed that to happen in the Voyager trial. But I would emphasize we didn't control for that exposure. So we didn't, we didn't do a two-by-two two randomization. We didn't tell practitioners which patients to give it to. We allowed the sites to do that. So it's a real-world look at this, but it wasn't controlled for. So that's the background. And the question we then asked was, what well, was the addition of clopidogrel really on top of the randomized therapy, which is rivaroxaban plus aspirin versus aspirin alone, what did clopidogrel do to the overall benefit and risk of bleeding in this setting? So before I move on, that's the context from which we did this subgroup analysis.
0: That's great background. Thank you. Can you talk a bit about your findings of the analysis?
1: So the first question we asked is, did the addition of clopidogrel modify the overall benefit seen with rivaroxidam plus aspirin. So we compared the response on the primary endpoint with or without clopidogrel by randomized group. And we found no effect modification whatsoever. So in terms of reducing the risk of the primary endpoint, the addition of clopidogrel did not change that benefit. at all it didn't make it better. It didn't make it worse. So it was basically indistinguishable with or without clopidogrel. And if you look at the components of the primary endpoint or the subgroups, the same was true. So if you believe that rivaroxaban plus aspirin is superior to aspirin alone, and the first real evidence we have on how to manage these patients in this setting, then the addition of clopidogrel, which is a third drug on top of rivaroxaban and aspirin, added no additional benefit to the primary results or the subgroups of the secondaries. So the next question we asked is, well, how did it affect bleeding? And looking at that, the first question was, was there a statistical interaction with ISTH major bleeding, the principal bleeding outcome? And if you look across the trial, the answer was no. That rivaroxaban did have an increased risk of TIMI major bleeding, while not significant, uh, was also increased risk of ISTH major bleeding. Uh, Those risks were increased modestly, and really not affected overall by clopidogrel, nor were the components of the most severe bleeds, intracranial hemorrhage or fatal bleeds. Well, we dug into this a little bit deeper and asked, well, what was the bleeding risk when patients were actually taking clopidogrel? And to clarify that, the protocol allowed the use of clopidogrel up to six months, so it was expected to be short. And in fact, the general recommendation was just use it for a month if you have to go there. And in fact, the median duration of clopidogrel use was quite short. It was 29 days. And by six months, it was completed. So I want to emphasize that the exposure to clopidogrel was relatively short-lived and front-loaded as to early days in the trial. And when you look at that, and if you look at ISTH major bleeding as one of the bleeding parameters, the addition of clopidogrel on top of rivaroxaban and aspirin does show a pretty dramatic signal of increased risk of major bleeding that has a pretty steep rise in the first 30 days. And then as you reach that median use, there's a bit of of an inflection point, and that risk starts to decrease a bit going forward, but continued through that time of exposure. So I think that leads us to the conclusion that, well, if you should want to retain using clopidogrel, and add that on top of rivaroxaban and aspirin, you should expect more major bleeding, particularly during that first month or two of clopidogrel use. And once you stop the clopidogrel, then, then that risk of bleeding should come down. So I think that overall, the results do show that three drugs bleed worse than two drugs. And you know there could be consequences to that, we're looking into that. So overall, the results show that Voyager was positive the addition of clopidogrel did not change the overall benefit. The overall risk was roughly the same between groups except when you look early. And there, during the time of clopidogrel exposure, there is certainly enhanced risk of bleeding. So in conclusion, I think we feel that the evidence-based therapy we currently will now have is rivaroxaban plus aspirin. And without evidence to support clopidogrel plus aspirin, we don't think there's a strong rationale to add clopidogrel in this setting. And in fact, it would increase the risk of major bleeds, which are things we'd like to avoid. So that's what we learned from that subgroup analysis.
0: During your presentation, you said that these results may actually be difficult to interpret clinically, partially because they contradict what has been taught for decades. Can you expand on this?
1: Sure. So historically, going back, well, at least 10 to 15 years, the idea of dual antiplatelet therapy arose out of the CURE trial. And that was a study in patients with ACS who were given clopidogrel plus aspirin, and that was superior to aspirin alone. And then PCI Cure showed that it worked in the setting of coronary interventions. And then since then, there's been a lot of work, not just the clopidogrel, but the and other drugs, looking at the setting of ACS, coronary stenting, that kind of thing. And it appears that dual antiplatelet therapy is particularly effective in the setting of stenting or maintaining patency of an intervention, it's really kind of a stent drug. And the duration was looked at in the DAPT trial, and probably if you go too long, it's probably not a good idea. So a lot was learned about clopidogrel for treating coronary disease. But the problem is, when you look at the peripheral circulation in those patients, there are no positive trials whatsoever that support the use of DAPT in that setting. And despite that lack of evidence, clinicians, the interventionalists, continued to use that, particularly after endovascular therapy, because they believed it was important to have more intensified antithrombotic therapy but without any evidence to support that. I think the controversial finding here is that with Voyager being positive, and now we have evidence that we have a treatment that actually works at preventing things, reducing the risk uh, slightly of heart attack and stroke, and significantly for acute limb ischemia major amputation, then why would you continue to hang on to DAPT where there's no evidence when you could simply switch to something that has evidence? So I think that's going to be the challenge going forward is just changing practice patterns, that kind of thing.
0: Okay, I see. Interesting. You also said during your presentation that while there are a number of recommendations for dual antiplatelet therapy after PAD intervention, the recommendations are largely inconsistent or may not be based on the strongest quality of evidence. Right. In fact, you had said that if you look for convincing evidence that dual antiplatelet therapy has clinical benefit in this setting, there isn't really any. How can your findings help in providing that needed evidence and in the development of future recommendations?
1: Well, we hope that the Voyager results will change two guideline statements. The first is that the combination of low-dose riboroxaban plus Astrum would be supported by ACC, AHA, ESC, and other guidelines as having high level of evidence to support its use in practice. And I think that in the absence of any other data prior to this, and the compelling nature of a well-run trial in over 6,500 patients, that guideline would be easily supported. The second guideline statement, which is the current recommendation for clopidogrel, I would hope that would change as well, and that would be downgraded to either as short an exposure as possible or don't use clopidogrel at all, depending upon those who write the guidelines, how they interpret the data.
0: That's just an example of what I mentioned before, that what you and your colleagues determined is really being considered practice-changing. And we might see that with those two guideline statements. Now the last question I have for you is, what does this analysis reveal about the current state of dual and triple antiplatelet therapy? The results certainly bridge a few knowledge gaps, but do you think your findings highlight any new areas of research that are needed?
1: Well, I think we've known for a long time Alice acs with a trial of plus aspirin, where if you have three antithrombotic drugs, you bleed more than if you have two, and that's been seen in a number of other settings. With Vorpax or TRA2P, for example, is another one. And so I think most clinicians would rather avoid three drugs, and because they would rather avoid what was a well-now-established heightened bleeding risk. Most of these regimens have aspirin as kind of a constant, and so you probably want to retain that. And then the next question is, well, would I still use clopidogrel in this setting or should I just use rivaroxaban? And really the choice is between one or the other, I think. And the challenge I have to clinicians and when I've discussed this publicly and in ad boards is asking, why would you retain clopidogrel when there's no evidence, when you have something that shows clear evidence for rivaroxaban, so why not just switch? There've been discussions about, well, maybe we should start the rivaroxaban later, maybe give a month of clopidogrel plus aspirin, and then stop that, and then add the rivaroxaban. Probably problem with that strategy is that the Voyager trial was not designed to test that particular treatment approach, i.e., we didn't delay the use of rivaroxaban. And in fact, when you look at the kaplan Meyer curves on the primary endpoint, the components, they separate very early. And so if clopidogrel plus aspirin or DAPT is really ineffective, and you delayed the onset of rivaroxaban for a month, you're gonna miss a month of benefit And that's probably not a good thing. So I would simply say, quite frankly, I I would recommend that you abandon the use of clopidogrel in this setting and simply switch to rivaroxaban. We know the safety profile is also quite good numerically. Ironically, there were fewer intracranial and fatal bleeds with rivaroxaban than it was on placebo. So I think the risk is pretty good, Uh, they're well tolerated. And I'm not sure why you'd want to retain use of clopidogrel in this setting.
0: Well, it's obvious the impact that your findings can have in the field. So I want to thank you again, Dr. Hyatt, for joining me today. It was really great to gain your insight.
1: I hope that that was helpful and I answered your questions.